Welcome. We're going to now travel through a uh, monumental and fundamental Sicha of the Rebbe. It is the third Sicha of Parshas Vaschanan in volume 19. It also happens to be the conclusion of the entire Masechta, the Tractate of Sukkah. So let us begin. Uh, this Sicha is used and quoted in so many other sources. And when we have this uh, foundation, it's uh, really a hallmark of the Rebbe. Let us begin. So this week's Parsha, Parshas Vaschanan, Moshe is at the end of his life. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's telling them to behave themselves when they get into the land of Israel. And he tells them, Jews, my fellow brothers and sisters, you should do that which is upright, that which is proper, that which is good in the eyes of Hashem. Okay, that's a general statement. But what does it mean practically? So in Jewish law, in the Gemara, we derive from these words, the law of bar metzer, which means which means that if I am selling my property, okay, I sell my property, I sell it to Yankel. Now, the property I'm selling happens to be the neighboring property of Chaim. It's Chaim's next door property. Really, it would have been much nicer if I would have sold it to Chaim, actually, because the fact that Chaim has two properties that are right adjacent, that are adjacent to each other, that's of great benefit to Chaim. But I sold it to Yankel instead. Well, this sentence says that Yankel, the one, the purchaser, the one who bought the property, he is obligated to now give that field, give it, he sells it now to Chaim because Chaim can benefit. Yankel can get a field all over. There are many fields all around. Aha, but Chaim, that field is more valuable to him. So therefore, the neighbor, the neighbor, in our case, Chaim, can take the field away from the purchaser in our case. Which means that from a technical perspective, it's actually the purchaser's responsibility to be nice. He bought it. He now has the obligation to bring it, to give it to the neighbor. The bar metra, the neighbor. And this seems clear from the Gemara. The Gemara actually tells us that let's say the purchaser was a Gentile, was not Jewish. Well, then as the Gemara says, If you sold it to a Gentile, he is not obliged, he doesn't have the obligation of bar metra. Why? Why? Because because a Gentile does not have this Torah obligation to do that which is proper right. So that is the law of Is this clear? Clear this is the law of bar metra. That's Isaac. Now, there are two ways to understand the nature. What does this law of Barmetra, what does it actually mean? Here we go. Firstly, we can look at it as an obligation upon the purchaser, upon Yankel, to be a nice person, to be an upstanding, a good person, a right Hey, it's the right thing to do. You're not obligated to do it. Sort of this is the Torah uh, in, 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 in inviting us to go beyond the letter of the law and to do that which is right, be nice. That's one way to. Or option number two is as follows. The Torah actually telling us that this should go to the neighbor creates a certain level of ownership that the neighbor has in this property. To quote the Nemuka Yesef, one of the foremost commentaries in the Torah, one of the Rishonim, he says, It's now the Torah telling us this actually gives this neighbor, Chaim, somewhat of an ownership in this land. So it's almost by virtue of being the neighbor, he now has some connection to the land itself. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference if the 
one who bought it, the purchaser, has to just be nice, or the purchaser has to give it to the neighbor because the neighbor has some connection to the actual land itself. In either in either situation, no matter how you understand it or look at it or how you approach it, the, the, the purchaser has to give it to the neighbor. What's the difference? Aha, his gimel that Rebbe says, it's a big difference. Because if I look at it as just something that's nice to do, it's the Torah talking to the purchaser, the Torah telling Yaakov, hey, you should be nice. If he doesn't, then the court has to get involved. The court has to say, fine. But it's the Torah talking to the purchaser. However, if I look at it as if the neighbor actually has some connection to the land itself, then you're right, the Torah is telling the purchaser, is telling Yankala to be nice. But by the Torah statement, it's actually creating a reality. The Torah is saying that by me telling you to be nice, that actually creates a reality wherein Chaim has some connection to the land itself. And it then becomes the court's obligation to see to it. It's their responsibility to see to it that this reality is expressed legally and practically. They have to then remove the purchaser from the property, from the field, and ensure that the neighbor gets it. So again, this is a general outlook. This is very important and fundamental for the rest of the sicha. Do we look at the neighboring at at uh, uh, Chaim as just, hey, Yankel has to be nice to Chaim, or does Chaim actually have some connection to the land itself? Does the neighbor have some connection to the land itself? With this introduction, now we can begin Halacha Dalit, the Rebbe says as follows. We can have an appreciation and an understanding for a machloikis, for an argument, for a debate, for a discussion between the two greats, Rambam and the Rashi. Rambam and Rashi. Now, let us look at Rashi. We're going to look at this. I'm going to read it now. Rashi tells us what is the reason, what is the rationale behind the Torah statement? Do that which is proper. What is it? Rashi says, If you stand nothing to lose, you, Mr. Purchaser, you could have bought any field, any wheat field around. You can find another place. Why should you burden? Why should you burden the neighbor, that he should have one property down the block, one property here? Isn't it better for him to be able to have two properties next to each other? In other words, Rashi approaches us through the lens of, be nice, be nice. The Rambam, the Rambam says no. Look at the Rambam. I'm going to read the words. The Rambam says, this neighbor, he has to, he can now give money to the purchaser, give money to Yankel who bought it, and say, get out of there. Why? Why? Because of the sentence that says, do that which is proper and right. Amru Chacham and Marseille says, since this is one property, it is good, it is upright, it is proper, that he should acquire this place and therefore make it one large estate. He should have more of an acquisition. He should purchase this more than just someone who's a foreigner who just came in and, uh, and, and isn't the neighbor. Aha, aha. So what do we see over here? What do we see? The Rambam says, essentially, that the Rambam, sorry, according to this, we'll understand the Rambam says something beautiful. What happens if someone does sell it to a Gentile? So we said, we quoted the Gemara before. The Gemara says, well, listen, you can't tell the Gentile to give it to, uh, to the, uh, the neighbor. He, he's not enjoined by this obligation to be nice, be upright, be proper. That's not an obligation for a Gentile. Says, That's true. That's true. But says that someone sells a property to the Gentile. 
that seller is placed under a cheyrem, under a ban, a ban of he's ostracized until he accepts responsibility. What, ex- what does he accept responsibility for? For the laws that that Gentile might have caused the neighbors. And the Gentile, and he's still put in cheyrem, he is still ostracized until he agrees, he gets the Gentile to agree to conduct himself in relationship to his neighbors according to Jewish law in all matters. In other words, to a certain degree of notice, the Ramam doesn't quote the Gemara and say, hey, what can we do is not Jewish. And the Ramam says that the Gentile has to act appropriately to his neighbors. That means we can't obligate the Gentile to do so, but we can ostracize the original owner and ostracize him until he gets the, 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 his, his purchaser, who's a Gentile in this case, to rectify the wrong. In other words, the Ramam sees this as something innate within the land itself. Okay, and here we have Allah which is really, uh, I can't say that for me personally, I enjoy this paragraph the most of the entire sikha, but really it, it encapsulates and underscores really what the Rebbe's sikhas are all about. The Rebbe's approach is that an idea in Judaism is not an isolated idea. Torah is one, Judaism is one. There's a oneness that's woven within the fabric of Yiddishkeit. And this foundational idea expresses itself in other areas of life and other areas of Judaism. And in fact, the Rebbe's Mentor, one of the Rebbe's mentors, the Raghut Shavagon, he saw Torah through that lens as well, as did many other greats. They find the common denominator, and they find the nugget, and then they see how that common denominator expressed itself in every area of, of Judaism, in areas of Jewish law, thought. It's incredible. So, in other words, let's get to the essence of it. What is the impact of proximity? How do two neighborly, inter, in, in, how do two neighborly entities interact with each other? In other words, is it just a superficial one? If I'm next to you in time and space, when we'll go through various, how do two neighborly entities interact with each other? In other words, Rashi said, listen, got to be nice. Gotta be, the fact that he's a neighbor, the fact that Chaim owns his property creates, what is that created? It creates an obligation for the purchaser to be nice. According to the Rambam, no. The fact that these two fields are next to each other actually have a profound impact on each other. This is true both in time, in space, and within humanity. So we talked about space, physical space of uh, fields being next to each other. Now, now, we're going to move to time, okay? Within time. What about two time periods that are next to each other? You see, by Torah law, there is an obligation to take some of the time period before Yom Kippur and actually make it Yom Kippur. You have to extend Yom Kippur into the ninth day of Tishrei. Yom Kippur is observed on the 10th day of Tishrei. No, you have to take some of the ninth and actually make it a part of Yom Kippur. There's a discussion whether by Torah law, we do this on Shabbos as well, before every Shabbos, before every holiday. If that's a rabbinic obligation, a Torah obligation is, the, is a discussion. But the fact is that there is the time period of the weekday, mundane, regular time period. There is the holy time period, whether it's Yom Kippur or Shabbos or Yom Kippur. And the two are adjacent. They're right next to each other. They're neighbors. So what is the impact of one of them? There are two ways of looking at it. You can say, you can, you can look at it such that Yom Kippur is such a powerful holy entity that it actually impacts, it transforms by virtue of it being a neighbor, it transforms the time period before Yom Kippur to become holy. That would be, as we said, and we're going to go through this, like the Rambam, that what? That when you have two properties next to each other, one property actually has an impact on the very fibers, the very grass of the other, the soil. The other one is no. Yom Kippur is a holy day. And because of its proximity to the time period before Yom Kippur, then you, or by the way, after Yom Kippur as well, you have to, Zev Terev, it's like a wolf that grabs before and after the Gemara says, that ever talks about that in other places as well. Because it's right before or after Yom Kippur, therefore you have to act. You have to act 
in a Yom Kippur type, Shabbos, Shabbos day, uh, holiday type manner. Because if you're entering such a holy day, that sort of spills over and you as an individual should honor the time period before it. And this, by the way, Zion explains the underlying debate as to, as to whether you can make Kiddush in this time period. Okay? In other words, if this time period has transformed to actually become part of Shabbos or a holiday, you're probably not making Kiddush, then to make Kiddush, you can bring the sanctity. Kiddush means you're sanctifying the time. But if it actually remains weekday, it remains weekday time. It's just that one has to act in a holiday Shabbos type mode. You have to be in that holiday Shabbos type mode beforehand. Okay? You can't make Kiddush. Kiddush means you're sanctifying the time. Now, parenthetically, by the way, you even on, on Pesach, you have to wait until it's actually dark. I, why wouldn't you tell me that, hey, right before Pesach, the time period before should transform. It, it might transform to be Pesach. But here's a different issue. You have to do it at night. You can't transform day into night. That's a physical reality. So night doesn't transform the period before it into being night. But the holiness of Pesach can transform the period beforehand as being as having the holiness of Pesach. And now let's move. Halacha, Sorry, I usually give classes in Rambo. Um, let's move. We've talked about time. We've talked about space. Let's talk about interpersonal human interactions. And this is actually where we get, because the Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe delivered this talk as a finale, as a seum on the entire tractate of Sukkot. And at the end of Sukkot, we are told as follows. Full introduction. The Kohens. The Kohens used to be divided into 24 groups. There were 24 shifts of a coin. You were on duty for one week a year, one week every 24 weeks. You're a coin, you're divided into shifts. There was one shift, and at the end of every shift, then one of the prizes at the end of your shift is you get to enjoy the special lechem hapanim, the bread that were on the table. Now, who got that? Did the outgoing shift get it, or did the, did the, did the incoming shift get it? Because they would sort of, on Shabbos, they would overlap. Well, the answer is that they would divide it. Half the loaves would go to the Incoming shift, half the loaves would go to the outgoing shift. Now, the outgoing shift in the courtyard of the base of English, the northern part is the holier section. The southern part is the less holy section. The incoming new Mishma, the incoming shift, they're about to start. They're on a high. They would divide their bread, their six breads, or of course, the people, seven and five, whoever, however it was divided, they would divide it in the northern section of the courtyard. The outgoing shift, they would divide it in the southern section with the exception of one shift. That shift's name was Bilga. Bilga always was relegated to eating and dividing and having their bread in the southern, the less holy section of the court. Additionally, and I'm not, I'm not specifically not explaining this right now, their rings were closed and their storage compartments were seen. Hold on, we'll talk, we'll, we'll understand that in a moment. Why? Why is that the case? Why is that the case? The Gemara offers two explanations. Why does the shift of Bilga have this punishment have this uh degrade they're degraded diminished in status well answer number one because there was bilga named after this person it's his shift it was the names of the shift and they continued these shifts for generations had a daughter by the name of miriam miriam actually became an apostate she became she converted out of the faith she married a greek officer she actually entered the temple with the greeks and kicked the altar she said she demit she degraded the altar because of this because she degraded the Mizbeach, her entire shift was punished in this way. That's answer number one. The Gemara says this is a different answer. They were always late. This shift, they, became, they came late. And therefore, they said, hey, you guys are not taking this seriously. We're going to be degraded. Then the Gemara asks the question. says, well, okay, if you want to say they're late, I understand. 
But says the Gemara Lamanda Amar Miriam as Bilga Shemira Dasa. If you say that the reason that they were degraded is because of this, their daughter Miriam. The question is, why should that impact the entire shift? One girl sins, and that should impact the entire shift. You see, we're talking about the connection between people, right? The influence that one person has on another, right? That's where we're headed. Um, uh, says the Gemara, we do that, says the Gemara, yeah. Amra in, yes, we would do that. Because people say, because when kids talk, the expression is when kids talk, you know that they're either expressing the views of their father or their mother, right? If you're a preschool teacher, if you're a child in school, you know, you see kids talk, you're a counselor in camp, you see kids talk, you know, aha, that's their father talking, that's their mother. Says the Gemara, one minute. That's fine. Maybe, maybe she her act wasn't just indicative of her, but she must have gotten that behavior from somewhere. She got it from her father and mother. But that's just one father and mother. There's a whole shift of coins over here. What do you mean? I understand you want to punish their family. Her, she was influenced by her parents. Says the Gemara, yes. It's one family. But woe to the wicked and woe to those who neighbor the wicked. Yes, all the others were impacted by the fact that this family is not active. And then the Gemara concludes. <coughs> and the Gemara says that these are the last words of the, of the entire track, the entire Masechla. But how great a tzaddik is, how great his neighbor is. And the Gemara concludes with a sentence. Shenemar, how do I know this? Because it says, Imru la tzaddik. They say about the tzaddik, tell the tzaddik, look about the tzaddik, that what? He pri the what? The righteous man is good. Do you know why the righteous man is good? Because they eat the fruits of their deeds. They, what do you mean? The righteous man is eating because other people eat their fruits? Yes, because of the greatness of the tzaddik, other people are impacted. Their neighbors are impacted as well. And it seems, by the way, the fact that the Gemara spent such a long time on this answer, remember the other answer is because the ship came late. That was another reason they were punished. The fact that the Gemara is spending a long time talking about the, that they were punished because of Bilga seems that that's the primary reason that the Gemara is associated. Okay? Now, Rashi. So we got the Gemara. The Gemara tells us that why was everyone punished? Because woe to the wicked, woe to their neighbors. And then the Gemara concludes in saying, how great are the how great are the righteous and how and how and all the their neighbors are impacted as well. Now Rashi ends, Rashi explains, and he says, Mikan Amru from here, they said, I'm just quoting the middle of Rashi, Rasha woe to the wicked, woe to the to his neighbor. And now I know that neighbors of a righteous are also. Get, they get, just like you absorb some of the wickedness of the Russia, you absorb some of the goodness of the tzaddik. How do I know that? Now, if you'll remember, the Gemara told us I know that because it quoted a sentence. The sentence says that they will eat the fruits of the righteous. So there's many people who will eat the fruits of the righteous. That's what the Gemara says. But Rashi doesn't have that. Rashi sort of either deleted it, didn't have it, or doesn't think that that should be in the Gemara. Rashi says, you know how I know that the righteous, that the goodness of the righteous spill over? Because the Mida Taiva murder. Because when it comes to goodness, goodness always outweighs the opposite of goodness. So if someone negative has an impact on their surroundings, how much more so would a tzaddik have on his surroundings? So what the question is as follows. Why? Why does Rashi need to have this logical deduction? Rashi uses logic to deduce that, again, the logic is that we have a rule. The rule is that holiness and goodness is always more powerful than evil. Right, so that's the rule. So then, logic would dictate that if a wicked person impacts his surroundings, so obviously a holy person impacts his surroundings. Why does Rashi take the approach of using a logical approach? Why does Rashi take a logical approach to this as opposed to the Gemara that we read 
together, which says, hey, the way you know this is because the sentence says that they are going to enjoy the fruits of the, of, the, of the righteous. It's a clear sentence. So that's the question, and we'll leave you on a cliffhanger right now, and let's move to a different subject. Ice test. What does it mean when we said, remember, this uh, shift of Bilgah, they had to always divide their breads in the southern part, but then their ring was closed and their storage compartment was sealed. Okay? What does that mean? Aha. We're going to have a discussion, a, dis a debate, an argument between Rashi and the Rambam. Rashi says, the ring refers to the ring. They had 24 rings that were on the ground. Imagine a large ring that's set into the ground. And it was used to slaughter the animals. They could turn the ring. It was, if you're watching the video, you could sort of see it looked like this. And they would turn around so the animal's neck had an opening. The animal's neck would go inside it. Then they would turn it closed. And then it would hold the animal's neck in and they could slaughter. That's what Rashi says. Their ring was always closed. They couldn't, there were 24 rings. Each uh, one sort of represented one of the shifts. Guess what? They had to use someone else's ring when they were slaughtering their animals. Because of what, what Miriam did, they had to use someone else's ring. That's what Rashi says. Then the compartments, the compartment sealed, they had compartments within the walls. They had little sort of, you could picture lockers where they would store their knives for slaughter. So Rashi says, both of these punishments related to the slaughter of the animals. The Bilga had to use someone else's storage. They had to store their knives in someone else's locker. And they had to use someone else's ring to slaughter the animals. The Ra Rambam says, no, 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 no. The ring and the compartments refer to something else. The ring refers to the rings that were on the wall. They were hooks, so to speak. Not rings, but hooks on the wall. They would hang the animal after slaughtering the animal. They would hang the animal up. And that's how they would skin the animal. There were 24 hooks. And Bilga's hook was gone. Punished. You got to use other people's hooks. The storage compartment? Ah, no, no, no. That's not the storage compartment where they store the knives. According to the Ramam, that's a storage compartment where they store their clothing. Remember, the Kohanim had to wear special clothing to be the Kohanim. So why? What's the difference? I mean, it's a factual discussion as to what, how they were degraded and how Bilgo was the mean. But why that discussion? says, aha, listen closely. A woman is permitted to slaughter an animal. A woman is permitted to bring a carbon. That means any person. It does not need to be a Kohen. Any individual who comes to the base, they have to be ritually pure. They can slaughter their own carbon. It's only once it comes to receiving the blood that comes out of the, of the animal. From that point onward, it needs to be only a Kohen. But anyone, anyone can slaughter the animal. So, according to Rashi, what was the punishment? What was the punishment of the rings and what was the punishment of the compartment? For what was the fine? Well, how was Bilga's group degraded? Because it was degraded because of a woman. So the impact was on things that related and could be connected to her being a woman. In other words, things that she could theoretically have been involved in, slaughtering the animal, whether it's putting the animal in the ring or storing the knives for slaughter. But according to the Rambam, where we're talking about the hooks of, of, of skinning the animal and the clothing, those are not areas of the service that a woman can be involved in. Meaning, according to Rashi, the proximity of Bilga to her mishmar, to her shift, only influenced, quote-unquote, women's issues because she was the one who brought about the problems. In other words, the proximity of Bilga to her entire shift was a superficial one. She acted in some way, so it had some impact. It only affected the areas that related to, when we say woe to the wicked, woe to her neighbors, woe to the wicked, and woe to the areas of life that she interacts with and that she influences. In other words, areas that she can be involved. But according to the Rambam, as we've learned when it came to the Bar Metzra, and it led, what the Russia, actually, when you have two neighborly, Entities, they actually impact each other in a very, in a very real way. 
Okay? And this connects, so actually the Ramam talks about it at the very beginning of his book, which is the laws of character traits. He says that a person is a midini, a person is actually, their mindset actually changes by virtue of their friends and their surroundings. So it even influ- influenced the non-slaughtering, the non-shchita areas of the ship. Ah, that's the reason that there is this debate. Isn't this beautiful? How you see that the same, the same nugget, the same common denominator is woven within this tapestry of all the different discussions. Now let's look back. Let's look at the sentence that shows us that a tzaddik has an impact as well. And we'll understand why Rashi doesn't use that sentence. Let's look at the sentence. Look at the sentence. Okay. The sentence says, Imrul Say about the tzaddik. We're talking to one tzaddik now. We're talking about one person. Okay. And what should you say? You should say to the tzaddik that what? That kitoiv is good. That they will eat the fruit. They will eat the fruit. So the proof is that, hey, we have one tzaddik and they're going to eat it. But look at the sentence a little more closely. It says, they will eat the fruits of malalehem, their deeds. It should say, they will eat the fruits of his deeds. He's the tzaddik. He's the righteous guy. They're going to eat his fruits. It doesn't say that. It says, they're going to eat the fruits of they're going to eat the fruits of their deeds. It doesn't say they're going to eat the fruits of his deeds. They're going to eat the fruits of their deeds. Why? Why does it say that? Aha, that's the whole point. This sentence wants to tell us that the tzaddik has such an impact that by virtue of being around the tzaddik, they actually become your deeds as well. So the sentence says, tell the tzaddik that he's good and that they are going to eat the fruits of their deeds. They become their deeds. They become their deeds. Aha, that's the very reason that tzaddik, Rashi doesn't Include this sentence. That's the very reason. Because you'll remember that what? Rashi doesn't view neighbors in that light. Rashi doesn't see an impact of actually one having an internal, a special impact on the other. And therefore, he sees the impact of a tzaddik as being, just as we said, a logical deduction that if a wicked person has an impact on their surroundings, how much more so does a tzaddik? But Rashi doesn't want to use the sentence because the sentence implies that it actually becomes the deeds of the tzaddik himself. But wait a second, let's see this. The Gemara says, and Rashi says that, hey, the Russia impacts someone, so the Tzaddik impacts someone. But Rashi says, ah, the Tzaddik impacts someone to a greater degree. Why? Remember, because because when it comes to areas of goodness, you always have to, you know, goodness is always more potent, more powerful than is the opposite of goodness. So therefore, Russia has an impact, but the Tzaddik has more of an impact. Why is that relevant? We're trying to demonstrate Umar wants to demonstrate that Sadiqim also have, a, a, have, have an impact. Why is that relevant, especially according to Rashi? The answer is because specifically according to Rashi, since Rashi only sees a neighbor as having a superficial impact, it's important to come point out that when it comes to holiness, that is not the case. You see, when it came to Bilga, they didn't kick out her Mishmar from the service, her shift from the service. They just diminished and degraded it. You know why? Because negative energy does not pierce through a Jew. In fact, the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us that even about the Gemara, there's talking about Achon, the Mishnah. Achon, the man who sinned, and because of his sin, the entire Jewish people were negatively affected, and he's going to be killed. He's going to be killed, but his punishment will not have an impact in Olam Haba, the world of truth. Because the truth is that anything that's not good is a superficial facade for a Jew. Okay? It's not who we really are to begin with. So in other words, Achon himself, a Jew himself, is never evil. He's done, okay? He's going to be punished. He is good. He has a lot of schmutz, a lot of dirt, and he needs to go to the laundry and the washing machine. But 
when we talk about goodness, that's who we really are. And therefore, when we speak about the impact of tzaddik, the impact of goodness and holiness, that actually changes a Jew. Yes, it's because of the tzaddik, that impact is a profound one. It's not just on par with Euler Russia. It's a more powerful impact. Now, again, it's still Rashi. Rashi is still of the opinion that what that it doesn't have, it doesn't actually affect the, the thing inside, so to speak, itself. It doesn't transform the field or transform the time or transform the person, but it has a much more powerful impact than does the Rashi. So this, therefore, concludes the analysis of how neighborly items impact and influence each other. And we can see this in all areas of life. And now, as we get ready to conclude the Sikha, the Rebbe now turns to a deeper dimension. What can we learn from this? Moving away from the technical discussion. This is Eisyanavus. Oyla Rasha, literally the words mean woe to the wicked, woe to their neighbors. It doesn't just mean woe to the wicked, woe to their neighbors. It also means oy about the Russia. In other words, oy is the sound you make when you're in pain. Oy la Russia, oh, I have Russia in me. Oh, I have negative energy. Oh, I have things that are the opposite of good. Oy la Russia can also be sort of homolytically translated as oy, oy, I'm not in a good space. Oy, I need to get rid of this negativity. Oh, we have to transform and ban and break free of any negative. That's called Teshuvah. Moving away and breaking free of anything that's not holy. Toivla Tzadik, how great a Tzadik is and how great how great a Tzadik is. That means embracing righteousness, being filled with joy and goodness. So, Oyul Rasha and Toivla Tzadik are not just two statements, woe to the wicked and good for the righteous. Woe to the wicked means woe about the wickedness that, that exists. Toivla Tzadik means let's be joyous about the goodness that exists. And when we have those attitudes, we call them we veer away, we abstain, we break free of evil. We embrace and we are joyous about good. That has an impact. That has an impact on our surroundings as well. Others will also break free. They will also move away from negativity. They'll also embrace holiness. And this actually expressed itself so beautifully in the two examples we gave. What were the two examples of time and space? Space was the Bar Metzra. Time was adding to Shabbos and to Yom Tiv and Yom Kippur. Well, let's look at the Bar Metzra, the field. That neighbor, right? What is, let's look at him, the purchaser. The purchaser, he bought a property. He now, he likes his property. He has to break free of his own selfishness. He has to now give that property, not give it, sell that property now to the neighbor. He bought it. And why does he have to sell it to the neighbor? Just in order not to, a minor inconvenience. I mean, still, but having two fields next to each other is so much more convenient, okay? We're not dealing with holiness here. It's business. It's an area which is filled with business interests. And I want to make, no, stop thinking about yourself. Don't think selfishly. I know you're in the world of commerce and business now, but think about what's righteous. Think about what's good. Break free of your selfish, egotistical, um, evil self. But then it comes to taste of Shabbos, adding to Shabbos and the yomtim and the holiness. Here we're in the realm of holiness. We're in the realm of goodness. We're in the realm of, 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 of Kedusha. Well, that holiness extends and spreads to the time periods before and after Israel. There's a safer, there's a book called Megala Mukhex. It's written by Rabbi Nasim Nata Shapiro, who's the chief rabbi of Krakow. He spread a lot of the Kabbalah of the Ariza, who lived in the 16th century in Poland. He writes as follows The month that we are on the cusp of, we're still in the Tishabav mode, but we're heading towards Elul. Elul is the month which is an acronym for Oi Larasha, Oi Lishcham, Woe to the wicked, woe to their name. Why? One minute, I thought Elul was a month of mercy and divine forgiveness, not retribution. Ah, but based on the way we retranslated and we reinterpreted the words, Oyla Russia will understand it. Oyla Russia means breaking free of the Russia, breaking free of the negativity. And when we do that in Elul, when we do that in Elul, and we do Teshuvah in Elul, that actually has a divine impact. That has an impact on its neighbor. Who's its neighbor? The month we're now of. Okay, in the Zohar, 
In the Holy Book of Kabbalah, it tells us of radiance, it says that the months of Nisan, Iyar, and Sivan, these first three months of the year, they belong to Yaakov. Well, Yaakov and Esau are twins. If Yaakov has three months, Esau also has to get three months. But Kabbalistically, it says he only got two months. He Elul was taken away from him. He got Tammuz and Av. Months where we observe, we focus on the negativity, on the Esau's of life. But in fact, even the part of Av that's after the nine days is also taken away. It's not his. You see? Because when during Elul we experience the oil of Russia, we negate the Russia, we negate the negativity and the evil, that that has an impact on El, on Av. On during Elul when we do that, that has an impact on Av as well. That transforms all the days after the nine, first nine days of Av. And indeed, one of the uh, commentaries on the halachic work, work, the Rush, one of the Rishonim, the early commentaries, halachic codifiers uh, after the area of the, of the Talmud, uh, he says that when we talk in Jewish law about not having business dealings with uh, a net Gentile in court during the month of Av, that only means the first nine days of Av, because the rest of Av has already been transformed. By transformed by what? By virtue of Elul. By virtue of Elul being this oil Russia, by virtue of Elul being a day which is filled with negating negativity, well, that influences Av also. Av also becomes a day where, uh, among uh, at least the, 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 the days after Tisha B'Av become days where we can then experience victory, even if it's with uh, um, those who are opposing the Jew in court. Now, ultimately, as we conclude, we're not just in the business of oil Russia, of negating negativity. Ultimately, we're here to spread Kedusha, to spread the holiness, to the point that of itself becomes Menachem of, it becomes a month of consolation, days of consolation, even the first nine days of of, the days that are Asaph's property, they too become a consolation, and doubly so. In other words, as we are going to read in the Haftorah this week, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, God will console us. He'll console us from the loss of the first, the base of the loss of the second base of The days of Av will become days of consolation. Let us all, God willing, enter the month of divine mercy, of divine compassion, the month wherein Hashem reveals to us that you'd give me the Sarachman, his divine mercy, which is completely beyond anything we can imagine. Let us that, let that influence each and every one of us and bench us with Exibach Sematayva. Even here we are. We haven't even gotten to Tisha B'av yet. Or just if you're studying this days after Tisha B'av, we wish each other that we be inscribed and sealed in the Book of Life for a good and healthy year. And thank you for joining us on this incredible journey through the Sikha.